When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. What is it like to be a student at a campus doing one of the speech controversies? Today I speak with Luna Martinez, a second-year law student at the University of California at Berkeley School of Law. Luna was there during the controversies in the fall of 2017. She thinks about the law both as an instrument to create a better society and as a practice. She's also engaged in the proper ways to respond to such incidents on campus, how to include all students and faculty perspectives, and how to go about studying and pursuing your degree while your campus is subjected to debates that are not necessarily part of the educational mission. Welcome. I'm so pleased today to be here with Luna Martinez, who is a law student at the University of California at Berkeley School of Law. I think you are starting your second year right now. Is that correct? I am. I'm as well. Yeah. And are you also getting a master's degree in international relations or you're in two programs at the same time? Right. I am a joint degree student, so I am getting a JD at UC Berkeley, and I'm getting a Master's of Arts in Law Diplomacy, which is basically an international relations degree at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Wow. So you're being in a bi-coastal program with the Fletcher School at Tufts and UC Berkeley in law school? Yes. So I doubly appreciate you taking the time to talk today. This is really this is really great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for making the time. So I've talked to a couple of your professors. So David Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. Ian Haney Lopez, Dean mm-hmm. Erwin Shemarinsky, Prudence Carter, Jay Wallace, the philosopher who've been involved at Berkeley in thinking through what happened in the last two years uh, related to what people think are free speech controversies. One of your professors actually said it is not a free speech issue. It's a hate speech issue. He said it's mm-hmm. the wrong framing. But mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a sense of, as a student at Berkeley, how has it been for you to sort of look at this and as a law student and someone interested in law and diplomacy, you're interested in international things, but this is a very, at this moment, very heated American conversation And I would love to hear sort of your sense of how this has been unfolding and what has happened um, on your campus. Right. Well, as you know, Berkeley as a campus has been used sort of as a battlefront for both alt-right or right-wing people and progressive people, mostly students. And I think that it's been used as sort of like a performative theater 
where we have clashed our politics without really talking about the underlying issues that are fueling these battles. I think that for students, one of the hardest parts about these battles is that we have never had the core conversations about who is being harmed and how by this free speech controversy. I think that as students, one of the feelings is of frustration and impotence because it seems as though the school administration is not really giving a voice to our needs and to our articulation of our harms. And it's just being spoken as a free speech issue without really taking into account the political context in which it's taking place. I, for one, believe that free speech has been co-opted by the alt-right as a tool to hide away some of their actual goals, which I believe are to divide our community and to fuel racial fear. And those are the conversations that I wish um, we were having as a community. And instead of doing that, we're mainly focused on the free speech issue as a legal question and not as a social or political question. Interesting. And as a law student, of course, you know, you probably had your, you know, introductions with your dean and other faculty and free speech, First Amendment, big principle in law schools for all law students. And you're saying, but it can be, as you said, hijacked or co-opted for purposes. And I'm interested, are there purposes that you think it had been intended for? Or does it go against the spirit, let's say, of a free speech doctrine? When you're saying this concept can be used for other ends in a way, can be manipulated. Right. Well, and I think that this could be an, or could have been an opportunity to engage in through dialogue about what the First Amendment actually covers and recognizing that the law evolves and that that's a natural process, that the law is not immutable, it is not inevitable, it is not inviolable. It is a codification of our agreements as the social community and because it's just codifying our agreements, that means that our agreements can change. And they have changed. We have been wrong about the law in the past. And I think that other countries have recognized that free speech does not encompass everything. And I think that we need to have a conversation about the limits of free speech. And if the law is dynamic, then what other things do we want to take into account when speaking about free speech. Even here in the US, free speech doesn't cover absolutely everything. You know, like false advertising is not covered by free speech, even though it is technically only words. Child pornography is not covered. Blackmail is not covered. So there are a few things that are not covered. It's not an absolute umbrella. So, you know, I think that this could be an opportunity to talk about the underlying values that we want to be codified in our laws and that we want to, Powell has a good way of putting it, he asks, what values do we want to animate in our daily discourse? And I think that the free speech controversy, more than about free speech, it speaks to our underlying values as a society. So I, for one, think that if I had to sacrifice some of my freedom so that others can have more equality in terms of, for example, access to facilities, 
I would be willing to sacrifice that freedom. So, you know, I think it's about priorities, whether we prioritize individual freedoms, like being able to say whatever you want, wherever you want, or equality, what do we do when those two things come at odds? So what you're saying is what an, what values do we want to animate in some ways that the law, you say, gives expression to a society's values. And as you say, they change throughout time and they evolve with this understanding that hopefully things will get better, that hopefully we'll come to better interpretations of the law. You're in law school right now, and I think all your faculty and everybody sort of thinks the law should evolve toward a better state for everyone, right? And as you point out, the you know free speech doctrine is and jurisprudence is varied, and it's fascinating. Over 200 years, we've never had one static understanding of free speech. Although when the public talks about it, I think people think, no, free speech really means anybody can say anything wherever they want. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of carve out these other areas and they say, oh, there's defamation, there's blackmail, there's, you know, certified obscenity, which we say child pornography, for example, although there had been disputes about these things. And they also, you know, immediate threats, all these things, fighting words. But that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about these opinions. And, and this is, I think, what had happened on your campus that people presented this initially as this is just controversial speakers. This is just people who have a different opinion from maybe many of the students at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And then they were sponsored by student groups as well. So mm-hmm. those students probably felt, well, we want to bring these opinions out into the open because they mm-hmm. hadn't really. So, so when you're saying are you ready or will, or would consider say, well, you have to weigh that interest to have just any mm-hmm. opinion on this campus with other interests on campus? Um, you know, I want to problematize a little bit that characterization of what happened here. Mm-hmm. I think that we tend to say that we want to give, you know, like sort of equal ground to different points of view. And that was how, that was one of the justifications or rationalizations that were used to bring these speakers on campus. One, I think the truth is that these are groups and people whose views and voices have not been underrepresented. They have been validated, reinforced, centered in social discourse. They have media outlets everywhere. You know, I think that this idea that their voices have been historically silenced and this was their one only platform to be heard out is, is a false characterization of what happened. And I think it also fails to analyze more critically the work that they were doing, I think, quite deliberately to, again, use this platform to separate our community and, more importantly, to really try to quantify the harms, which I think is also a conversation that we've been missing. The fact that the hateful speech that happened on campus has quantifiable harms on our community. Beyond, Powell also talks about how so, you wait, know, wait, sorry, please, give me this reference. Who is it you're referring to? Powell? Oh, John Powell. Yes. John Powell at the Haas Institute for a More Equal Society, I believe, here at the law school, yes. has spoken only, written a lot about free speech in this context. And there was a panel conversation between Erwin Chimarinsky, the dean of the law school, then Carol Christ, our the chancellor, right? Chancellor here. And John Powell was one of the panelists. And one of the things that he was saying is that we can quantify sort of the psychological harms that hate speech has on our communities. But beyond that, 
there were also efforts in several departments to quantify on a real basis the amount of time and resources that had to go into reducing harms to students on just like our everyday lives. So for example, they closed up the campus for days in advance. They had to displace several classrooms because we just couldn't hold class during those days. The faculty had to reorganize their syllabus. They were getting hate calls on the phone at several departments that would clog all of the phone lines. They were getting print jobs of thousands of thousands and thousands of swastikas that, you know, was read as just a way to, again, clog the work of these departments. So several of the departments came together to just issue a report about the very real, very tangible ways in which this event was disrupting our daily operations and how those harms were deliberate, they were calculated, they were intentional, they were not an accidental byproduct of the visit of these groups on campus. And they and you're saying that's important to say they're quantifiable, they disrupt mm-hmm. the university deliberately. Mm-hmm. They probably fall short of this very narrow legal category that they're not immediate threats of injury, which is a line that everybody knows cannot be crossed, must not be crossed. And I've talked to several, you know, your peers at the University of Virginia and Charlottesville, you know, where where it's resulted in incredible violence and death. And so that line, but you're saying short of that, there's even a disruption, a deliberate disruption of the university's functioning. And that this is intentional. It is not incidental ancillary to what's happening, but this is actually a kind of aiming at the university itself. And I'm kind of interested why you think, why do they come to the university? Why don't they just go rent a stadium or haul down the street and you get more people, you can go on social media, do a you know, Facebook stream or something. What are they interested in, do you think, in the university? Well, I think that the choice of Berkeley is again, not accidental. Berkeley as a public institution stands for something. We had the birth of the free speech movement here, correct? And we have a self-selected student body that is mostly very progressive. And we have progressive scholarship coming out of here. And the law school is one of the top public interest law schools in the country. So we produce people who will go out into the world and try to create a more inclusive society. So I think Berkeley being this bastion of progressive politics and being very clear about our ideological commitments and making every effort to be an inclusive community, it only makes sense to use us as a target to harass. And I think that's one of the conversations that was missing with how the situation got handled. The fact that, you know, the people who came to speak on campus are aligned with the mainstream dominant political groups in our society and with the dog whistle racist politics of the federal administration. And the fact that they came here to Berkeley to sort of like try to institutionalize this discourse of otherness and this discourse of exclusion, I think was a very strategic, very intelligent choice because it forced us as a campus that is committed to inclusion to not only permit hate speech, but protect it. 
And I think that at some point it went almost farther than protecting the right of free speech and into promoting hate speech because the campus spent all of these resources and time and support into bringing these 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 events on campus and those were resources that could have gone into a myriad other efforts that were aligned with our mission. So I think that sadly, those groups were very successful in using this as a platform to, you know, co-opt what free speech truly could mean. I I spoke with the Dean of your School of Education, Prudence Carter, of this, and she said she's quite interested in this. She considers it a false equivalence between people whose speech has been isolated or marginalized. And she said, she Mm -hmm. actually said very importantly, she really believes that the students, the conservative students feel that they don't have as much of a voice on the campus at Berkeley, the Progressive University. And she said, they speak out of feeling. She recognizes that, Mm -hmm. but she said she will not grant them this idea that they are now taking on this role of their suppressed minorities. They are being Mm -hmm. victimized. They're excluded. This kind of status as we have to defend our right against this oppressive machine called Berkeley's progressive student body. So she said, you can acknowledge that some of the students felt we are not as loud or powerful at a voice at Berkeley, but this does not lead to claiming the status of an oppressed minority. And you're saying it's linked up to much larger political phenomenon that the federal government, you know, endorses much of this, that these people are not isolated. They have huge followings. And they want to claim kind of Berkeley's tradition of we give everybody a voice who hasn't been heard and turn that on its head. Right, which I think is very intelligent and strategic in the sense that it has a real reputational cost to our institution because we are one of the places that have been trying to give a voice to historically underrepresented minorities. So... As you said, I do believe this is a false dichotomy. It is painted as, you know, like a simple disagreement between two parties that have equal but different viewpoints. When in reality, I think it's an overrepresented group of people who have been historically dominant. It is mostly white male people, just like in Charlottesville, from a neo-Nazi group that is, again, incredibly aligned with conservative groups like the Federalist Society, which has very strong links with Capitol Hill, with Judge Kavanaugh, who will probably be confirmed to the Supreme Court, and has a direct line of communication with President Trump. So framing this as a group that has been silenced actually negates the fact that the people who were harassed here at Berkeley are those who needed protection. And I think that those of us at the school who believe in equality, and I think, you know, as an institution, the school believes in equality, we think that it's necessary to resist all attempts to institutionalize exclusion, you know, not only in hate speech, but in our policies as a school. What sorts of expressions are we willing to not only permit, but protect and promote as a school and that's a wider conversation that we should be having i've noticed i you know when i went to interview um and to have conversations with david oppenheimer at the law school of urban shemarinsky there are signs every at every entrance to your law school that say 
class must not be disrupted. We do not allow mm-hmm. loud protests. You will be ejected mm-hmm. from class. So actually the law school itself governs itself on principles that say when you before you walk in, it doesn't say this is a free speech zone, you can say anything. It rather says if you interrupt and disrupt deliberately what we're doing here, you will be ejected from this space because this is about mm-hmm. something else. So mm-hmm. I was interested in that as a kind of signal that say university has to uphold its mission and defend that mission. And you're saying this, some students are directly harmed or and departments or people on campus are directly harmed, not just inconvenienced or offended, but really harmed and kept from doing what they're meant to be doing at the university, study, do research and teach. But also, Uli, I think it's not only our everyday operations, but are very right to exist in this space. I'm like, I'm from Mexico City and I'm here part of the La Raza Student Association and we have several students who are undocumented. So when we have people like Milo come to campus who have outed undocumented people, who have given out information to ICE and who will espouse this racist rhetoric and use this as a national platform for their message. What we are hearing here is that our right to exist in this space, to survive and to thrive in this institution, is being questioned and is being threatened, that we are not welcome. So during those days, I know of students who didn't feel safe coming to campus. And that goes beyond protecting the rights to speak and into protecting our rights to just be alive in the space and to feel physically safe. So again, I think this is a conversation about what we want to prioritize as a society and what we're willing to give up. Are we willing to give up our ability to say anything in a very specific space, in this case, an institution of higher learning? Are we willing to give up someone's right to enter that building to take classes that will then build into their professional career and allow them to have a better chance in life? You know, when we weigh those things against each other, the answer is very clear to me. And sadly, when those groups came to campus, the answer that we heard from the institution was their right to speak is more important than your right to exist here. Interesting. This is really important what you just said. I think this is it's such an important part of this conversation to focus on equality and right of participation because that's also a legal requirement for universities, for public universities. So it allows the conversation not to be led in this direction of this is just offended feelings and it's tough. You've got to suck it up, but you know, you get through it. This is rather, it is actually also illegal for a university to discriminate against some people based on group belonging. It has to provide and make its resources available to everybody who's been admitted. So the mm-hmm. equality principle is that changes the conversation into something into saying students have a right to be here once they've been admitted. I'm curious how La Raza and you students, was it possible to respond or in the law school to have discussions or to do anything? I've talked to students at Harvard University who did mm-hmm. counter protests and were very exhausted by that, by that mm-hmm. effort to actually sort of be on their own and sort of generate an entire program that the university wasn't providing so how did you as students in the law school respond to this? Or what did you do during these events? 
We did several things. You already referred to a couple of them. We had panels to talk about free speech, not only here at the law school, but also in central campus, where we tried to bring together people from different disciplines who could weigh in and give us their perspective from their fields. And these were widely publicized. They were uploaded online, and you can probably find them very easily. They are all available also on YouTube now through Berkeley, which is useful, I think, yes. Right. So we did that. We provided, for example, training for legal observers because we over that week, it was not just one day, but we had a militarized campus for days and days before and after the protests. So we had legal observers trainings so that people could go out and monitor police activity and ensure that we weren't having either violence from the police themselves onto students or from some of these alt-right activists onto students and, you know, the anti-Nazi crowd that also came to campus. So we had those trainings. The National Lawyers Guild provided those legal observer trainings. Sorry, who, uh, sorry, who, who provided the training? So this is for, uh, for basically the, neutral observers on campus? So the National Lawyers Guild, it is the largest organization on a national level of progressive lawyers, and they do several things. And one of the things that we did with our chapter, we have a local chapter at Berkeley Law. So one of the things that we did was hold uh, training for political observers. So basically you go to the protest and you document, you monitor police activity and you have a very visible green hat. So the police know that you are recording everything that happens. And then if someone gets arrested, you refer them back to the San Francisco chapter of the National Lawyers Guild so that we can provide legal representation for those people, right? So that was one of the things that we did. We also, as I said, pulled resources with other departments. So we had a working group to report, compile this report that I referred to earlier about the quantifiable, tangible administrative harms that these events had on us. How did you as students actually, sort of how did you organize oh, this? Oh, as think students? About this? Because you're not organized to do this. You're there to study, to have your projects, to research, right? This is, you're also in law school, so... But we also, and I think that this holds true for most other law schools, we have a very thriving body of student organizations that represent different interests. So we have affinity groups like the La Raza Student Association, we have the Law Students of African Descent, we have the Asian Pacific Association, and we also have some political groups. So we have the Federalist Society and we have the American Constitution Society, which is, it was born as a response to the Federalist Society. So we have a lot of groups that respond to these needs and these concerns and that when something like these events happens, we already have a very organized body that can respond to it in an organized way. So yes, we're students, but we also know that as potential lawyers, future lawyers, hopefully all of us, as future lawyers, we also have a responsibility to our communities and to, you know, be responsible about the legal skills that we're acquiring. So we really, I think, try to put that in the service of our communities. And when things like the hate speech movement happen on campus, I think that we have a very concerted response as a student body. Let me follow up and ask you a difficult question. So okay, I'm, a white, I'm a white man. Uh-huh. And I, I'm familiar with a lot of the student groups and I've 
worked with and learned an enormous amount from a lot of students. So you say La Raza and students of African descent, the Asia Pacific or the Asian American Student Association. What about the white students? What about the white students who are men on campus, who are in the law school, pursuing their degree, saying this is just difficult. I'm going to, this week, I'm just going to study a lot to move on, get my degree. How do you involve them? Because I'm genuinely interested because I think this debate falls sometimes into a place where say, oh, students of color or minorities have to speak up and defend themselves and faculty of color should do this. And the rest, which would be someone like me, this is not really our concern. And I am kind of curious. I've asked this question of many people, and it's sort of it's very it's a very <laughs> difficult question because how do you as a, as a lawyer let's say you're building your your case right now? How do you create a body of witnesses and you know experts supporting your case? And you need to draw on a lot of people. How do you bring them in? Is there a way to do that, or how, how has your experience been about this question? I mean, I, I guess I'd have a couple of ways to answer that. First, I could say that there's an ethical responsibility. That would be the easy answer to say that, you know, even though we like directly, you white, cis, straight male students did not like directly create this problem. We know that these are historical harms and that, you know, perhaps you shouldn't um, be made responsible for the consequences of your forefathers' actions. I, I understand that. At the same time, we live in a shared community, and I think that it is to the benefit of everyone to try to build this community um, in a way that is guided by values that we all agree are important. So I would say even though you yourself as a white male student might not be the direct target of these attacks, I would ask you what sort of community do you want to build as a school? And what sort of social community do you want to build as a city, as a nation, as a world? What are we aiming for? And I think that we all have a stake in that because that's the world that you're going to interact with on a daily basis. That's the world where your children will grow up. So I think that while you might not be the direct target, you still have skin in the game because I believe you would want to live in a place that is more inclusive, that is more just, that, you know, protects people regardless of their backgrounds, of their religion, of the color of their skin. So that would be the easy answer. I have a second one, which is more sort of utilitarian, you know, which is even if you don't care about building that more just, you know, more equal world and Maybe we don't even agree on the definition of equal and just. So, you know, there's an impasse and we will just not reach an agreement about that. I would say that there is also a utilitarian reason for you to get engaged in, you know, civil dialogue and participate in protecting those communities because you never know when the balance may turn and when you might be at the other end. And the truth is, you will have to interact with these groups of people when you graduate, when you are a professional. It will benefit you to be able to engage in civil discourse with people that will be your colleagues, that will be your bosses, that will be your children's teachers. So I would say even if you don't particularly care about building a more just society, I think it will ultimately be to your detriment to explicitly exclude people who are different from you 
because whether you like it or not, this is the world you're going to live in. I think that's a really important point. What you're saying is that it's putting a finger on a lot of the conversations in, our, in the United States right now. Say, where is this country currently? Where has it been and where is it headed? And you're saying there are many different people. It's a pluralistic society. It has been quite dishonest in a way about realizing this as a kind of, you know, the, the sort of an equality principle. But you're saying it's inevitable. And in some way, I like this utilitarian argument to say to your classmates, if you don't care about this, it'll cost you actually. You will actually won't do as well in the world. You will survive. You will do fine in a way, but it could turn. Or also you will depend on people. And if you have no idea how to engage, it'll be a professional detriment. In the law school, how was the conversation? Because you have, you know, your dean, Erwin Shemarinsky, you know, who wrote this important book on free speech on campus, where he basically says, and I've talked to him about two weeks ago on a podcast, he says, there's no middle ground. It's just not possible. And he says this also for a specific reason. He says, because we don't want to expose UC Berkeley and the chancellor to lawsuits. It's so costly, so difficult. So the Committee on Free Speech with Jay Wallace and Prudence Carter said there may be time, manner, place restrictions. There may be ways to ask the student groups to justify, explain better why they're inviting people. The university has to signal with other commitments. But Dean Chemerinsky really says, no, yeah. can't budge on this. <laughs> Um, I disagree with Dean Chemerinsky, and I know that I am not positioned to say that. I know that he's, you know, the most well-regarded constitutional scholar in our country, so it's funny that I'm saying this as a second-year student. I told this to Dean Chemerinsky as well, like personally, so I've asked his forgiveness because, you know, I disagree with him. I disagree with him. I think that, as I said, the law evolves. The U.S. tends to think that it is unique in, you know, in its commitment to the Constitution. And I think that we hail it as this inviolable document when, you know, it has changed even in recent times. Like, who would have thought that corporations giving money to political candidates was protected speech 10 years ago? Like, that's a very new interpretation of freedom of speech doctrine. So I think that we are a lot more able to accept changes in our interpretation of the law and adapt our actions and our social commitments in response to those interpretations faster than we think. I think that our societies are more malleable than we tell ourselves they are. I don't think necessarily that the letter of the law has to change in order for our interpretation of it to change. So again, the First Amendment has not changed since Citizens United. And if we had told the forefathers that, you know, corporations spending money on political campaigns would be protected speech, I think they would have been shocked. That was not within the letter of the First Amendment. It's not within the four corners of, of the Constitution. So I think that a little reading is the most reductionist way of interpreting the law. I think that at least in these Dean Chemerinsky would agree that the plain meaning rule is sort of a myth, that we all interpret the law based on our understandings of the world and that our understandings of the world are shaped by social discourse. So I think that the exact boundaries of the First Amendment, um, you know, might be difficult to determine. I don't think that that's an excuse to not engage in discourse about where those limits would be. And I think that other nations have done so, so successfully. 
I think that, you know, we could do so here as well. I like to think about Derek Bell. Derek Bell is a critical race scholar, and he talks about interest convergence theory, which basically says that social change for historically underrepresented communities will happen insofar as those interests are aligned with dominant interests. Which means that when we have a political establishment and a white dominant class whose interests would be advanced by redefining the boundaries of first speech doctrine, then perhaps we could come to an agreement. So I'm not sure that we're at that moment yet, but I think that we could find a time in the future, especially with the contentious administration that we have today, when we could have a conversation about redefining the boundaries and the understandings that we have of First Amendment doctrine. It's, you bring up Derek Bell, who was professor at the Harvard Law School, then resigned when they failed to hire and appoint a faculty, a, a woman of color for the, the faculty, although she was the second or third candidate. So he resigned a very powerful position to draw attention to the way in which he says this kind of progress is very slow. And the majority interest isn't always interested in helping underrepresented groups or minorities. Your professor, Ian Haney Lopez, in one of his mm -hmm. books, he writes about kind of his challenge with Derek Bell, who he disagreed with very early on and said mm -hmm. that the book Bottoms from the Faces of the Well is sort of too pessimistic and that racism persists in America. And he said, Ian Lopez said, I grew up and I believe things are going to get better. And now I see a more complex picture that actually progress isn't inevitable, that while many things have improved, that as a law professor, I have to work in ways and make the law actually really mm -hmm. become a vehicle of progress. And it can also be an instrument to stop progress. Mm -hmm. To go back to you, Dean, Erwin Shimarinsky, it's interesting. I actually read his book, The Case Against the Supreme Court. And he didn't really want to discuss it as much because that's a legal mm -hmm. book for legal scholars where he mm -hmm. says the court has failed to protect the interests of minorities and to guard against political majorities from mm -hmm. sort of ramming through their agenda unconstitutionally. And I said, mm -hmm. well, if you wrote a book that said the Constitution can fail us in a way in its interpretation on the Supreme Court, why don't we just rethink what's the current today's interpretation mm -hmm. of speech law? It could be mm -hmm. different. As you said, it was different 10 years mm -hmm. ago. Baking a cake right now is speech. Giving mm -hmm. campaign contributions is speech. You can restrict speech on abortions in health clinics that are funded by federal money. So there are all sorts of things are happening in our country right now where speech is redefined. But hate speech is the one where he doesn't want to budge on. He wants to keep and, it in his place. You know, I think if we wanted to get there, I think that Haney Lopez actually provides kind of a roadmap when he talks about dog, dog whistle politics. So I think that if we read these free speech controversy using the lenses of dog whistle politics, we could see that I think the underlying reasons that are fueling the free speech alt-right movement as understood today are really racial politics. I think it is a vehicle for racial fear. And I think that we have studied how you know, institutionalized racism plays a crucial role in the lifespan of people of color, you know, how trauma and isolation are directly connected to like higher suicide rates and earlier deaths, to addiction, to illness, to academic performance gaps. So I think, you know, there is a way to talk about the underlying racial animus 
behind the alt-right free speech movement. And if understood in that way, then instead of talking about freedom to say whatever you want, we would have a conversation about who we want to include in our communities and whether hate speech is itself a form of discrimination. So I think that, you know, I really like Henny Lopez's analysis of dog whistle politics, because especially in the current administration, I think they have played a huge role in hiding what the actual motives behind a lot of these movements are, which I think is to instigate racial fear, because I think it would be highly subversive and very dangerous to build social solidarity between different races, because then we would have to re-envision what our society looks like if we truly had interracial solidarity. And I don't think that that would help spheres of power. And I think that that would question structural inequality. And I think that that's a very scary social project. So of course, we need to use vehicles to divide us and each other. Your professor, so Professor Haney Lopez, in this book, Dog Whistle Politics. So on the podcast, he explained the history of these kind of using these dog whistle words that actually appeal to racial division and that allow people to identify with being white against their economic self-interest, where they're actually being left behind economically, but at least they're made to feel we're above people of color, etc. And what you're saying is that it's become very apparent with the current the Trump administration that this is no longer dog whistles. It's audible to everybody. Mm -hmm. You can hear it very clearly. It's risky. And your professor, Haney Lopez, he says he's actually optimistic. He actually thinks we've sort of gotten to a point we can start to think about different kinds of solidarity. And he said they're doing focus groups and they're doing work with people. And they say people are starting to realize this fantasy that they belong to one group that's going to win out that happens to be white is a fantasy that's terrible for them. They're being economically, you know, not being advantaged at all, but actually you know, being disadvantaged. And he said there are ways to do this. It's quite it's quite complicated, but he actually felt there's something positive. I was very happy in the podcast. I thought, oh, there's something to look forward to or there's a thing could get better, which is very unusual in our country right now to speak, you know, on a progressive campus. What's your sense how this is going to unfold? Do you think this conversation about hate speech, some people have maybe stepped back and said, huh, didn't really realize what's at stake here, or I thought, let one of those people speak and let's move on? I think that the whole free speech controversy is just one of the symptoms, I think, of a wider crisis. And insofar as it gets people to think and question more critically the very problematic political situation that we're living, then I think that there's hope in that. I think that this is only one of the ways in which we see the work the federal administration is doing in, as you said, you know, sort of fueling and utilizing social racial fears as, as a way to like leverage political capital. So I think that if I were to find a source of hope, it would be in recognizing in so many of my peers a newfound passion for participation and political engagement. I've seen, you know, people from my generation, so, you know, law students in, you know, in their 20s, late 20s or early 30s even, 
But I've also seen a lot of younger people here on campus, even teens, you know, teenagers, 18, 19, 20 year old college students who have been incredibly passionate, incredibly proactive and looking for ways to get involved, to question, to build social solidarity and to put, you know, the fruits of their knowledge, use them in a way to benefit society. So I think that there's hope in that people have responded very aggressively to these dividing discourses. And my hope is that we will take that beyond conversations and into action that, you know, it will not only be participating in nonviolent protests or practicing boycotts, but also, you know, in engaging in true civil dialogue and creating policy solutions both in our institutions, but also lobbying for change with our representatives. Now with the coming midterm elections, like I would hope that my peers would, you know, engage in some get out the vote campaigns. I've seen, that's my source of hope to see that my generation is engaging more and more and that we are, I think, walking away from the days of political apathy and recognizing that we have a stake and that we have a role to play and that we also have a responsibility to each other. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. I'm happy to hear that Haney Lopez is hopeful. That's good to hear. Right. It felt a little bit to me when I was visiting the University of California at Berkeley, where I studied there 31 years ago. And it seemed like the future then, it's a very different future, actually, because things happen in between. One thing we didn't touch upon, which is the invention of social media, which I think has altered everything in this conversation, because as we know now, things are amplified in very different ways and unregulated and maybe in productive ways sometimes, in terrible ways. Some of the conversations now, whether Facebook, Twitter should be regulated, which I find always really a surprising conversation that we have conservative members of government saying we should regulate Facebook or Twitter when their whole mantra is speech should never be regulated. So mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting. But California seems to have a bit of a sense of they have enough gravitas. This is the a corner of the country where the future has already happened, kind of the demographic shifts that people are talking about. You're living it. So, so there may be some hope there to draw on that. What's your plan? So you're getting this double degree at the Fletcher School and the law school, one of the mm -hmm. best law schools in the country, which really means in the world. You're originally from Mexico City. What are you going to do with these degrees? And what are you going to what do you think you're going to put your energy into? I'm going into public interest. So I will probably do a clerkship. So work for a judge after graduation for one or two years. And then I worked in policy before coming here. I worked as a policy analyst in the Mexican Congress. So my plan is to do public interest, sort of nonprofit work after graduating for a couple of years and then transition back probably into legislative work. I really think that policy is very important when thinking about structural change. So I would like to work on that. Haney Lopez has been trying to convince me to go into academics. So, you know, I might consider academia at some point in the future. I would have to get a PhD for that. So you're more doing, years of schooling. You're doing two degrees at Fletcher and Berkeley Law. You're probably get a PhD <laughs> in, a, in a year or so. I think the part about academia is, when you know, I don't know what Haney Lopez meant, I would say the important part of academia, is, and I've been teaching for a very long time, is you're teaching young people to think. And I think mm -hmm. this is very critical given that they're subjected to so much information, misinformation, et cetera. It's not just not simplistic, critical skills, 
But I experience all my students as really wanting to think through these things and they're not so happy by being told, you're just too young to understand, the First mm -hmm. Amendment is good for you, the Constitution has always <laughs> served you. And I think that's actually progress that people are saying, let me ask again, why is this good for me? Why do you think using the law in this particular way has benefited someone like me and I have a right to participate and be an mm -hmm. equal member and citizen of this democracy? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I agree. I think that as a law professor, I think, you know, one of the great impacts that you have is that you can ask your students to think critically about the law and think about their role in shaping the law and not just take the law as something that exists outside of ourselves and that, you know, we just apply, but understand that the policy questions and the legal questions are interbedded and are interwoven and that they affect each other and that we very much have a place and a role and a responsibility in shaping law as a structure and law as a vehicle for social change. So I agree that there's there's a role for professors to play in politicizing their students. We try. We try. <laughs> it's so great, Luna, to speak with you. And I, Thank I, you so much for I, making the time. I really appreciate the time. I can say that you're in one of the you know greatest law schools where people actually think about the law as both an instrument as something to be interrogated and reinvested with our values. But they're lucky to have you as a student. I'm so happy that you're there and doing all this work. And it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Lee. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Take care. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.